Good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. If we haven't met, my name is Christian, and we're glad to have you join us today for worship. Now, to begin, I'd actually like to start talking about fathers. How's your father? What kind of father was or is he? If he's here today, you don't have to look at him. That would be really awkward. <laughs> now, some of us may have had good fathers, some bad. But whatever the case, I think fathers as imperfect humans fall within a spectrum when it comes to their flaws. See, fathers are either too absent or passive with their children, or they are too disapproving or even abusive with them. And those flaws inevitably wound their children. Mitch Album in the book, uh, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, says this, all parents damage their children. It cannot be helped. Youth, like pristine glass, absorbs the prints of its handlers. Some parents smudge, others crack. A few shatter childhoods completely into jagged little pieces beyond repair. Now, as a father, this is a reality that I have to come to terms with. We all do our best, but I know in the area where I am least sanctified, in the area where I struggle with sin the most, it is in that area that I will likely damage my son. And I am very grieved by that. So, since we all probably have fathers, we're all probably damaged by ours. For some of us, it may be so painful that you'd rather not have one. Now, as much as that might be the case, I think we all have to admit the reality is we need a father. We simply cannot be a healthy human without a good father. Why? Well, because a good father is where grace and growth meet. See, a father is someone who loves us unconditionally, but also challenges us to be better. He not only buys us our bicycle, he trains us on how to ride one. In a father, there is both delight and discipline. He not only comforts us when someone breaks our hearts, he confronts us when we break our mothers. In a father, we are both cherished and challenged. And at the bottom of our hearts, isn't that what we want? We want to be loved exactly as we are, without the need to change. But we also want to be shaped to become better than we are. And in a good father, we have someone who loves us both ways. And we have such a father in God. See, throughout the book of Exodus, we actually find God's progressive revelation of himself. A few weeks ago, God revealed his name, I am who I am. And this passage here, this is actually the first time in the Bible where God declares himself a father by, by calling Israel his son. And it is through his, his heart as a father that we can see how he loves us, his children. So my sermon today will have three points. A father's commission, a father's correction, and a father's compassion. Well, before we begin, let's ask our father in heaven today for some guidance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, that you are a good, perfect 
Heavenly Father, Lord. You love us so deeply. You love us as we are. You would sacrifice your son uh, for our good and our atonement. But you love us so much that you would sanctify us by your Holy Spirit that we may become like your son, Jesus Christ. Please help us today. uh, Reveal to us your love for us in Scripture. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's begin with Exodus 4, verses 19 to 23. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what we have in this first passage here is a summary and repetition of God's commissioning of Moses, which we talked about last week to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to release his people. Now, Pastor Faraday addressed what being on mission means at length last week, so I'm not going to go through that again. I will, however, add what is actually developed in this paragraph. You see, God says here, Israel is my firstborn son. So what we have here is God declaring himself as father over his people. That's why he's upset with Egypt for enslaving them. He's demanding the release of his son, as any father would. But what's interesting here is that he's commissioning one of his children, Moses, to send this message. Now, have you ever wondered why God sends people to do stuff for him? Have you ever wondered why God sends people on mission? Isn't he all-powerful? Can he do everything and anything? Can he do all these things himself? Why does he have to send people to do these tasks? Well, do you ever wonder why your dad gets you to do your chores? Can he do it himself? Is he just lazy? Is that what God is? Is is God incapable? Or is he just lazy so he just gets people to do things for him, to serve him? Now, I have to admit, when I was a teenager, the thought did cross my mind quite a lot when my dad asks me to do stuff. Why can't my dad do this himself? Why does he have to make me to do it? Even when I do it, he corrects me anyway. So why doesn't he just do it himself? Wouldn't it be quicker? Wouldn't it be better? But now that I'm a father, I realize it's not at all what I originally thought. Do you know how much patience you need to ask a child to do something that you can do yourself. My son's only 18 months, so this might be a bit extreme, but we're already trying to get him to help us clear the dishwasher and put away the dry laundry. And I have found that asking your child to help you with the chores makes everything take longer, it's messier, and it's far more frustrating than doing it yourself. It actually takes more time and effort to let them help us, to train them in these things. Well, if that's the case, why bother? Why bother doing it? 
Why not do it ourselves? Why not let them play with their toys, get on with their own lives? Well, we bother because of grace and growth, because of delight and discipline. See, first of all, there's actually an intimacy and love that develops when I do these menial chores with Judah. I find him struggling to do it cute, and I feel very proud when I see him slowly understanding where to put the cutlery and how to go about doing these things. And I would rather do these things together than we do separate activities, convenient as it may be. But second of all, there's growth and training. You see, I love him exactly as he is. He does not need to change. But I know that he can and he will grow. Now this may sound cliche, but by training him on doing household chores, I hope to instill responsibility in his heart. I want him to become a responsible person who can love us by doing these chores when he's older, but who will also love his future family and friends practically in this way. You see, when God commissions Moses to go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh, as a father, he's probably doing the same things. See, he's doing this together with Moses now. In this activity, he's cultivating his relationship with him. But he's also doing this for Moses. By commissioning him, he's developing Moses' character. With this commission, Moses grows into a person who loves his siblings, his fellow Israelites. And it's the same with us too. You see, our great commission is different to Moses, but it's similar. Matthew 28, 28 verses 19 to 20 says, go and make disciples of all nations. Now in this verse, we see the love element. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's doing it with us, and he wants to do it with us. And we also see the growth element. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, God's commission to us is because he loves us. He promises to be with us as, he do, as we do his will. And by doing his will, we grow in love for other people. We mature and we become like our father. Now, unfortunately, I think we all know that despite being instructed by our father, we inevitably fail and we make mistakes as we try to live this out. And that's why God the Father not only commissions us, but he also corrects us. Let's continue. Uh, verses four, 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, after reading a passage like this, I think it deserves a high-pitched, what, when you read it? What in the world is going on? What in the world is this passage about? After commissioning Moses, God suddenly wants to put him to death. Zipporah had to circumcise his son and touch the foreskin to Moses' feet to save him. And this whole foreskin to feet ritual makes him a bridegroom of blood? Anyone planning their wedding wanting to include this biblical ritual in their wedding? Alex, no? <laughs> Let's just stick with exchanging the rings and uh, the first dance. 
Now, I remember listening to a sermon on this a few years ago, and the preacher actually said, this is the most difficult passage to understand in Exodus. So thank you, Pastor Ferdy, if you're listening. <laughs> I am not going to be able to explain everything about what's going on in this passage. But I think there's enough in here that we know what the gist is. See, there are a few things we can reasonably assume. Something made God angry with Moses, enough to seek to kill him. And two, the circumcision of Moses' son appeased God's anger. So I think we can safely conclude it was Moses' failure to circumcise his son that made God angry with him. And we can also conclude that like most men, he was saved by his wife. Let's just think about these things for a moment. Moses' failure to circumcise. You might think this is a very extreme reaction from God. But I think we have to remember where we are in this story, where we are in the Bible. You see, here, circumcision was not just one of many commandments God gave to his people. It was, in fact, the only commandment. This is before the Ten Commandments were given. This was before the whole law was given to Israel. That happens after Israel is free um, from Egypt. And Adam and Eve only had one commandment. Don't eat that fruit. Yet they did, and they were exiled for that. Here, well, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he told Abraham one thing. Every male child should be circumcised. Genesis 17.10 says this. This is, this is God speaking to Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. See, Moses not only disobeyed one of God's commandments here, he broke the only commandment God gave him, meaning that he broke all that God commanded him to do. He literally only had one job. But the second thing is the kind of failure this represents. You see, Moses' failure to circumcise his son is a failure of fatherhood. He neglected to do the one thing that draws his son into a relationship with God. All those who are circumcised are God's covenant people, God's children. And Moses neglected to include his own son in that. How can he lead Israel out of Egypt when he can't even lead his family in this one thing? And as a father, what we see in this passage is not condemnation, but correction. God is correcting Moses for his disobedience. Now, it may sound severe that God sought to kill Moses for his disobedience, but the consequences of sin is death. But what's important here is that he didn't kill him. He allowed for the opportunity of another to save him from his sins. And this is different from how he will deal with Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh and the Egyptians will be condemned for their sins. The penalty will be death. But Moses and the Israelites will be corrected in their sins. They will be met with discipline, but also grace and mercy. And that's the difference that God as Father makes. Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. 
For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, the truth is, we don't like discipline, do we? None of us like discipline. Don't you resent it when you're disciplined, either by your father or by your boss? I remember when I was a kid, every time my father disciplined me, I was so upset. Why does he have to be so hard on me? Why can't he just let me have a little fun? Other parents aren't as hard on their children as he is on me. Isn't that how you feel when you're disciplined? As Christians, isn't that how you sometimes think about God when you're incurring the consequences of your folly and sin? Why is God so harsh with me? Why is God so unfair? Why does he have to make this so hard? Other people get away with this all the time. Now, there may be some fathers who are just very angry people and they take it out on their children in abusive ways. I'm not denying that reality. But for a father who loves their children, I've realized that discipline grieves the parent as much as it does the child. Do you know how hard it is to withhold something from your child when you want to give them the world? That thing your child desperately wants, but in your wisdom you withhold because it's not good for him or her to have at this time. Do you know how hard it is not to embrace your child when they're reaching out their arms to you, but refusing to pick up the food that they've thrown on the floor? As they cry for you but refuse to obey, not realizing that the second, the second they heed your discipline, you would scoop them up in your arms. Why does a father do it then? Why does a father grieve himself and discipline his children? Proverbs 23, 13 to 14 says, disciplining a child will not kill them. Rather, it saves them from death. Though it may be unpleasant, Christian, God's discipline saves you from death, either due to your sin or your folly. And he is willing to be thought of as a villain to save you from your sin. God did not even spare his only son. How will he not willingly give us up all things? So if God is withholding something from you, it is not for a lack of love, but it is in his wisdom. His correction is indeed painful, but Hebrews 12 says this, 12.7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You see, the father corrects us because he loves us. And despite his severe discipline to Moses here, he continues to show compassion to him, as we'll see in our final point, verses 27 to 31. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went in and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. 
And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Here, knowing Moses' fear and sense of inadequacy, which we've heard of last week, God mercifully provides his brother, Aaron, to assist him. Although Moses could do it himself. See, this is how gentle God is with his children. Even as they are fearful, God provides more help than necessary to reassure them that they're able to do what God has called them to do. Aaron is just like a security blanket to a child when the real security is the presence of the parent. And this all turned out well. Moses and Aaron spoke to the Israelites and they believed. Israel, the children of God, when they heard that God saw their affliction and cared enough to send someone to deliver them, bowed their heads and worshiped. Here they experience God as a father who is both present and compassionate. God heard and listened to their groaning as a child cries to his parents for relief. And he sends one of their siblings to rescue them with God's power and might. God is not an absentee father. He does not think our concern and cries are unimportant, nor is he too busy with other things to care for us. He wants his children to be free from their oppression, and he will dish out hard justice to make sure that happens. He loves us, Christians. He hears us in our pain and suffering today, and he promises one day to wipe away every tear from our eye. Now, having heard all of this, you may be thinking, having a perfect heavenly father is all good and well, but honestly, I don't think I could ever meet his expectations as his child. I mean, I can barely meet my earthly father's expectations now, right? Now I have two fathers I can disappoint. How can I live with that? Well, here's the good news. Although God is the perfect ideal father, you are not expected to be the ideal son or daughter. You see, that burden falls on someone else. His name is Jesus Christ. See, unlike Moses, God did not commission Jesus to save his people from earthly rulers. God commissioned Jesus to save his people from sin and death. And unlike Moses, God did not ever need to correct Jesus. Rather, in Matthew 17, 5, at Jesus' baptism, God said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And unlike Moses, God didn't need to send an assistant for Jesus. He was fully capable of fulfilling his commission by himself. However, despite being a better son in every respect, Jesus experienced a very different result. You see, unlike Moses as well, the people Jesus spoke to did not believe. Instead, his siblings, his fellow Israelites, arrested him, condemned him, and crucified him on a cross. But this too was part of the father and son's plan. You see, because in the son's death, is our adoption. 
Jesus' death and resurrection cleanses us from all our sin and shame. And by believing him, not only are we purified for our sins, John 1.12 says, we have the right to become children of God. In Christ, the Father calls us his beloved child, with whom he is well pleased. In Christ, the Father commissions us to invite all nations to become his children. And in Christ, the Father empowers us to do this, not by sending another human like Aaron, but by giving us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to teach us the words to speak. French novelist Honoré de Balzac, in his playwright, actually wrote this. Someday you will know that a father is much happier in his children's happiness than in his own. And by making us his children, God has tied his happiness to ours. And at the end, despite everything it cost him, his creation ruined by our sin, the sacrifices of his son for our atonement, and the constant cleaning up of the messes we make in our lives. At the end, when he sees us face to face and we are safely in his arms forever, he will only ever be happy. Let's pray.